From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A preview of the Biden administration's 2022 budget request is coming next week. The Office of Management and Budget says the preview will include funding levels and agency top-line numbers. Federal News Network reports OMB hopes data will give appropriators in Congress a head start on funding bills. Shalonda Young's officially the deputy director at OMB. The Senate confirmed her 6337 on Tuesday. GovExec reports she's former deputy director and director of the House Appropriations Committee. The Office of Personnel Management will deliver remote work guidance to agencies soon for after the pandemic. Associate Director of Employee Services Rob Shriver says the guidance will, quote, promote a different vision of work in the federal government. FCW reports Shriver says agencies will still have flexibility to continue remote work the way they want. A review of the Office of Personnel Management and its potential merger into the General Services Administration is complete. The National Academy of Public Administration says transferring some OPM duties to the Office of Management and Budget and merging others into GSA wouldn't have fixed problems at the agency. Michael Regas is former acting director of the Office of Personnel Management, former acting deputy director for management at OMB, and former acting federal chief information officer. Mike, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. A lot of the issues that Napa took up were issues that were underway when you were at the agencies. What's your takeaway from what you read in the Napa report? Well, thank you, Francis. It's good to be with you again this morning. Um, it looks like the, uh, the, the Napa report took a lot of the recommendations uh, that we began under my tenure at OM, OPM and at OMB. Uh, so there are a lot of recommendations I agree with. Uh, there are some recommendations I would not agree with, but overall I think uh, they are addressing, um, or they speak to many of the items I was able to begin addressing under my tenure as OPM director. Um, so I would, I would certainly agree with their recommendation that OPM should be the sole uh, personnel authority in the federal government. Uh, that's something that Congress would need to act on. Um, uh, I would agree with their recommendation that IT modernization needs to happen. That's uh, an area where we spent a lot of time at OPM. Uh, we made, in fact, a, a $70 million request to Congress for some urgently needed IT modernization funds that uh, we were really kind of shocked and dismayed that Congress denied that request. Uh, but we took IT modernization very seriously at OPM under uh, my tenure there. And in fact, the last two federal CIOs uh, came from OPM. Our former chief of staff, who had tremendous experience in uh, IT security, cybersecurity, and IT modernization, was a federal CIO under the Trump administration. Um, and President Biden just named uh, OPM's uh, CIO as the federal CIO as well. So you can see how seriously we took the need for um, IT modernization at OPM. Um, and, and finally, I would say I would agree with the report's recommendation that OPM should take a risk-based approach and be more decentralized and reduce administrative burden on agencies, which is uh, one of the mantras I uh, touted while I was the OPM director is that we are there to serve the mission and needs of the federal government and to serve the needs of other federal agencies and to support the workforce. And we need to do everything we can to meet the needs and requests that are coming to us 
from agencies. I take your points, Mike. The two main takeaways, though, that just about everybody has gotten out of this Napa report, and Peter Levine and Janet Hale, two of the co-authors of this work, confirmed it on the program on Sunday, two of the major takeaways were things that run contrary to the work that you were doing at OPM. That's the merger into the General Services Administration and moving some of the functions to OMB. And the other one is uh, just the fact that you served as OPM director, albeit acting, at the same time you were DDM. Same thing happened during the Obama administration, but those were two things that the Trump administration really was, was at least okay with and yet the snapper report says not a great idea well i would i would agree so let's i would agree that um you know what we did at uh during my tenure there uh we had actually you know put the merger um on hold we sort of stopped pursuing any further activity on that because congress did not act on the administration's legislative proposal so that was something we actually stopped under my tenure as the uh, OPM acting director, because we had always recognized that it required uh, congressional action to do that. And uh, Congress, I think, made pretty clear that they did not want to move forward with that. Uh, but we still saw that there was an urgent need for reform at OPM. And we pivoted to focus on what we could do to help support OPM as a standalone entity. Um, I was dual-hatted for uh, most of my tenure, for most of 2020, most of the year, as both the OPM director and the deputy director for management at OMB. And as you noted in the report notes, that's been done several times before in the past. This was the first time that the dual hat came from OPM rather than from OMB. And one of the things I made sure to emphasize uh, in my OMB hat was that OPM was the sole uh, and would be, I would conduct myself as uh, the sole personnel authority in the federal government as OPM acting director, even though those authorities were also granted by Congress to the DDM. And one of the things I think Congress needs to revisit is to remove that uh, responsibility from the DDM role, because the DDM role has tremendous responsibilities as it is already. It oversees federal information uh, technology, federal financial management, uh, federal procurement, and uh, just overall management responsibility for the federal government. And I think the um, I think it was sort of well-intentioned, the CFO Act of 1990, to have the DDM also responsible for oversight of personnel matters. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, I think time has demonstrated that that really hasn't worked out as well as it has, it was intended. Um, and I think the, uh, that can still sort of be achieved because the, the OPM director also sits on the president's management council, which is chaired by the deputy director for management at OMB and includes all of the cabinet level deputy secretaries, it includes the GSA administrator, and I think that would be a more appropriate venue to engage from OMB to discuss with OPM and other agencies um, on personnel matters rather than giving that statutory responsibility to the DDM. Mike, there's always more ideas than there is time to talk about them. I have to have you come back and, and talk more. Thanks very much for your time. Right, thank you, Francis. Up next, leveling the playing field for women in the workforce. Straight ahead on Government Matters, best practices for empowering working women. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. Women make up 44% of the federal workforce. The Government Accountability Office says the last time it checked, women earn about $6,000 less than their male counterparts every year. Joanne Collins-Smee is Chief Commercial Officer at Xerox. She's former head of the Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration. Uh, Joanne, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You're writing about some of the things that you encourage women in the workforce to do and empowering working women. What prompted you to want to write this piece in the first place before we talk about some of the elements of it? I think because it's so close to home for me, Francis, being a woman, I have daughters, I work with some great female colleagues. So that, that's really what, um, you know, what inspired me to write it. You write under the, the title, What Can We Do? You write first, deliver both straight talk and encouragement. What have you seen in the workplace, both in government and out of government over the years? I find that uh, and again, I have a long career, Francis, we've spoken before, so I've been in the workforce 35 years. Uh, and one thing that I found is men, um, you know, and I'm making a generalization here, but often uh, would find it difficult to have what I would say is constructive criticism for women uh, and would ask me, oh, Joanne, can you speak to this one of my team members that's a woman? And I'd be like, Talk to them the same way you talk to one of your male colleagues, right? So women need that same straight talk to be able to get the right, um, you know, constructive criticism to help them improve in their career. So I think it's very important that, um, you know, we don't shy away from that, right? That we have the same amount of feedback and assistance for women as for men. You write that, that people should be sponsors and not mentors. There are a lot of mentorship programs all across the federal government. What's the difference between those two concepts, Joanne? Yeah, it, it, to be a mentor, in my opinion, is much more passive. That's where, you know, you might meet for a coffee. You're, you're going to talk to them once a quarter about career goals. But being a sponsor, you are in there helping them get that next role. Uh, you are working with them and on, okay, these are the exact steps you need to take. And maybe in a meeting where there's a job opening, you are actually sponsoring that woman for the role. And when you take that active sponsorship, you're then going to be very invested in their career to help them succeed. So it's, it's passive versus active in my mind. So I think the sponsorship is, is much more important. And I wonder, too, if there's a difference in, I, I take your point, uh, and I think it's well said about passive versus active, but I wonder if there's also an implication there, um, organizational versus more informal, where if I'm sponsoring someone, that's, that's a real personal relationship, maybe not something born out of, uh, of a structural program like a mentorship program. That's interesting, but I've I've found um, it's it, personal and professional, uh, you know, uh, are very intertwined, right? When you're at work for eight or ten or twelve hours a day, right? So you get to see your colleagues perform, you get to understand people's capabilities. So um, I think the personal and professional really become very tightly tightly uh, interlinked there. And yeah, you have an investment in that person then to help them succeed. 
The third item that you're writing about is pushing for organizational flexibility. What does that look like in, in, in a mature, developed way, Joanne? It's when a woman or a man, for that matter, comes and says they need help to balance their professional and their personal lives that an organization gives that support, right? The pandemic was such a great example of that where women uh, had and men had childcare responsibility on top of trying to run their you know professional workday. So as an organization, it's when an employee comes forward and says, "Oh my goodness, I need to get out early um, Tuesday and Wednesday to do X to take care of my family." That we have the flexibility in the organization to say, "Sure, as long as you get your work done." Um, you know, that idea about you being gone for X amount of hours to be able to achieve something on the personal side um, should be accepted. So it's much more of a blurring of the lines, in my opinion, on, uh, you know, work hours. Uh, it should be about the work deliverables, right? What is that team member bringing to the table rather than being so worried about, you know, they're logging in from, you know, this time to this time. We just have a little bit more than a minute left. You have four items at the end of this piece that you advise working women to follow. Set goals for yourself. Don't let fear hold you back. Learn constantly and give back. Is there one of those that you have found over the years has been more difficult for people to execute? I'd say don't let fear hold you back. I think women may overthink uh, in that I have kids. Um, I, I have a sick parent. It's like, no, no, you're also really talented. So ask the organization for what they need. If they really want you, they're going to support you. So, you know, take that jump, whether it's to a new company, you know, to a new assignment, to a new country. Uh, and, you know, it's, um, it'll be a good thing, right? And if it's not, you, you make your way back. So it's taking risks, I think. We all need to do more of. Joanne Collins-Smee, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to Joanne's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, using coronavirus relief money to slow cyber breaches in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, where the money's going and what it'll take to respond to those breaches. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The latest coronavirus relief bill includes about $650 million for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Some of that money will go toward helping the federal government re recover from major cyber breaches. Ari Schwartz is Managing Director of Cybersecurity Services at Venable. He's former Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Cybersecurity. Ari, welcome back. It's great to see you. What does CISA do with $650 million? I'm not suggesting that they don't deserve it or that it won't be well spent, but where, would you, where do you expect to see that money go? Well, I think what we saw in the last, uh, last year and in the last administration was an uh, effort to look at each individual state when, when we had this ramp up of looking at the election uh, process and the, the security around the election. And they went very methodically state by state in a lot of efforts that they have 
going forward, they're not going to have that kind of time. And they know that they have to ramp up the flyaway teams that they have, have to have more than one or two uh, operations in the field at the time, at a time to go look at our critical infrastructure and make improvements, uh, do reviews, et cetera. So I think some of that money will go to that effort. Um, and then they're also looking at kind of the new technologies. One of the things we saw was that uh, the efforts that they'd had to kind of come up with government-wide protections, were behind the times, um, and in when we through this in, in the question of the solar winds attack and the hafnium attack that we saw um, that that where uh, the the agencies didn't have the protections in place and DHS wasn't able to protect them fully uh, as well. So looking at new technologies to help to do that uh, uh, as well, I think is there. Two of the areas. It's not everything, but I think that that's, those are the ones that I'm looking at most closely. Is there a potential here for this to be a, a kind of a turning point for CISA? There are a lot of folks that have said over the years that CISA should really be the cybersecurity leader for the federal government and, and the cybersecurity operations across government are more dispersed than maybe they should be. Is this an opportunity to kind of harden that in some way? I think it is in some ways. I mean, for some, in some ways, it will, that that won't be the case because agencies aren't going to look to CISA um, to CISA um, uh, in terms of uh, they that they must respond to everything CISA says to do without OMB being behind it, without the National Security Council being behind it, without uh, you know that kind of backing. Um, it's similar, but but they do have the ability to demonstrate greater. Uh, um, competency and they've started to do that quite a bit i think we've seen that in the last few years where they do do demonstrate that greater competency and then agencies want to work with them and i think that that is uh a difference that we are already seeing and we will see more of if they have uh greater funds and greater ability to work with agencies and give them tools to protect themselves that the agencies want, um, as well as the backing from OMB that gives them that kind of credibility too. When you list all those organizations, Ari, it, it makes me recall the conversations that we've had over time about one person coordinating all those cyber efforts, national cyber director, national cyber coordinator, and so on. Still don't have a name for that yet, but is that is that concept maybe the what's going to bring all of those disparate pieces together that you just described? To me, I think that's exactly what the National Cyber Director should do. We've heard, we've seen in Lawfare, uh, actually there's this kind of ongoing debate now, what should be the National Cyber Director do uh, and what the vision for them should be. Uh, what you laid out is exactly what I think that that vision should be, that, that the National uh, Cyber Director should uh, be able to bring together all of these pieces, work with um, the National Security Council, work with OMB, work with NIST, work with CISA, um, and build up the ability to uh, coordinate together and uh, work together as a team, and then uh, bring in the other agencies when they're uh, not doing the things that they should do. Uh, the National Cyber Director will uh, will be based in the White House. We're expecting a, a cybersecurity executive order from the White House in the coming days, weeks. What do you expect to see in that, Ari? Um, I expect that uh, we will see uh, a range of um, efforts specifically aimed at uh, fighting the adversaries like China and Russia that we've seen um, come after the U.S. I think we'll especially see a lot of discussion about China, um, and that's some of that's diplomacy. Some of that is uh, work on uh, the efforts um, around the intelligence matters, et cetera, 
but in in the the main part that I've been focused on is the defensive side, um, and that includes things like software assurance um, that we'll see uh, a and supply chain efforts where we'll start to see some uh, new protections put in place to help to make sure that the software that comes into our supply chain in the U.S. government and beyond is uh, is has gone through the test and that we have some kinds of protections in place that, that uh, really look at the, the broader holistic efforts and not just kind of the, the front of what has come in. About 30 seconds left, Ari. Do you think that executive order will be a response to SolarWinds and Microsoft Exchange, or will there be more to it than that? Um, I think it'll be a little bit more than that, but I think there will be a lot that's directly on that point. Uh, we'll see a lot more because I, I think the bigger picture question from the, that we see from both of those is um, uh, that we weren't we're too still too busy protecting the border and we're not doing enough no, knowing that the bad guys can get in that there are going to be zero days there are going to be uh, um, exploits that can come in uh, that haven't been patched etc. Um, so what are we doing? Um, you know, what are we doing to make sure that we have kind of the endpoint detection uh, in in there, in able to protect us? What are we doing in able to make sure that uh, um, we, we know the behaviors that are going on in the network itself behind the firewalls? Ari Schwartz, thanks very much. As always, great to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our programs when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.